boy, been managing restaurants since 78. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just goes back a long time, but time has flown. Right. So don't ever think you'll be young forever. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And all of a sudden you look <laughs> back and go, God, that didn't seem that long ago. Right. Right. <laughs> Life is fleeting. From South Bend, Indiana, I'm Jacob Titus. And I'm Dustin Mix. And this is South Bend on Purpose. Welcome to episode one of season three of South Bend on Purpose, where we're telling the stories of people who are betting on South Bend by investing new purpose into old spaces, whether that's an old industrial building or a once lively plot of land. People whose internal purpose has manifested itself into a physical part of our city, the streets, parks, buildings, and restaurants of South Bend. In each episode, we'll tell the story of a space in South Bend. The season is structured around a series of live events where you can actually come and hear us interview the people that have invested into those spaces. Check out westsb.com slash on purpose to get early access to tickets for upcoming live recording events. Since we hosted a party to celebrate the ending of season two and not a live recording, the episode you're about to hear is an edited version of a conversation we had with LaSalle Grill owner Mark McDonald in downtown South Bend on the building's second floor. Mark McDonald is the owner of LaSalle Grill and LaSalle Kitchen and Tavern, both located on Colfax Street in the oldest existing commercial structure and the second oldest building in downtown South Bend. This episode, we'll be exploring the history of the building from its original construction and the many businesses that have resided within to its role today as a home to two of the most popular restaurants in downtown South Bend. Sitting on Colfax Avenue between Michigan Street and Main Street, the building that now houses Mark's restaurants was constructed in 1868, originally as the second St. Joseph Hotel. The hotel was designed in the federal architecture style, or as it was called in the survey card found at the Historical Preservation Commission, the style of peculiar Pennsylvania ideas of architecture. It first opened on September 10th, 1868, at least 20 years before any of the other existing commercial buildings. But for the next eight years, it would suffer from a change in management nearly every year until its closure in 1876. This building was built in 1868. Um, as the second St. Joseph Hotel. And I'm not sure where the first one was. Okay. I've heard the first one burned down. And this was a hotel. These were rooms up here. Okay. Lobby downstairs. And that's why the columns are there. And these these are columns that go all the way up. The pilasters are in the basement. Mm. Uh, This was the wall here. That's another, actually another building, as you see the the elevation of these transition there it oh, goes yeah. up a little mm-hmm. bit yeah that was a separate building they were joined and i don't know when they were joined together mm-hmm. but um it was only a hotel for about three years the building remained vacant for three years after the hotel closed until 1879 when marvin campbell later known as the president of campbell box and tag purchased the building for his retail and wholesale hardware business which he would later sell in 1884 from 1884 until 1939 the building housed a wide variety of businesses and industries, including the South Bend Bait Company from 1912 to 1919, a major manufacturing of fishing plugs, which first began in South Bend in 1912, and the McGregor Electrical Service, an electric motor manufacturer from 1927 to 1939. The turn of the century, it was an electric motor manufacturer. <laughs> and if you've been upstairs and saw the original pine floors, they're about two feet thick, the floors above mm. here. We've overlaid it with Brazilian cherry, but, you know, and that's what the floor of LKT is. Uh, but you see, you can see dents and 
marks where they were hoisting mm. big electric motors. They built them up there. And in some other pictures of the building, in that picture too, you'll see an I-bar that runs out in a barn door, that big window that's up on the east side. Mm -hmm. Yep. That was originally a door that opened and they mm -hmm. would they would uh, hoist out machinery down to a wagon right. in the alley and then haul it out. Some some people said the early rumor when we first started was that they used to store people's buggies upstairs <laughs> for a hotel. I said, how many rooms could they have had in here? They must have been awful small. They couldn't have been more than like eight rooms. Right. Yeah. And you know? was there like really a shortage of parking at I the don't, time? I don't think Premium so. service. Yeah. I, I, I said, I don't, you know, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. But that was the theory of why that barn door. But if okay. you look back, I think it was because of the Union Electric Company. So in 1939, Charles F. Sonnyborn and Charles F. Sonnyborn Jr. opened a sports store in the building named Sonnyborn Sports and Camera Shop. For 43 years from 1939 until its closure in 1982, it was one of the largest sports shops in South Bend. It was the premier local before there was Dick's mm -hmm. or Gander Mountains or Cabela's. There was local sporting goods stores, and this yeah. was the big one. For 50 years? For 50 years. Wow. In March 1984, 132 Partnership Limited purchased the building from the Sunnyborn family. And four months after that, Richard D. Sheffer bought the building to begin extensive restoration work. 14 years later, in 1998, the pass of the now oldest commercial building in South Bend and Mark McDonald would cross. Mark McDonald's story is anything but a straight line through life. From his early days considering the priesthood to his time on the South Shore as a train dispatcher to becoming a hairdresser and a bartender, it wasn't always clear that he would one day own two of downtown South Bend's most well-loved restaurants. How did I get to South Bend? Uh, well, in the uh, as I said, I, I grew up in Michigan City. Uh, I had a brief stint in the minor seminary and went to a day seminary program over in Bishop Knoll Institute in Hammond, Indiana, and rode the South Shore every day as, as a commuter at 14 and 15. <laughs> so my life experiences, I got, I think I I got old. I didn't ever mature because I'm still not <laughs> mature, even at 68. Um, but it kind of accelerated, you know, my horizons. And uh, I decided against the priesthood, went back to Michigan City and graduated in 68 the huge year of the 60s that supposedly changed the world. Uh, kind of dream a lot and wish if I'd see a plane going by or a train, I'd say, boy, I wish I was on that train and, you know, want to see what's over there. So how does that get me to South Bend? Work, I work on a railroad after a failed uh, year and a half at Purdue North Central University. And I'm a firm believer if you don't know what you want out of higher education, you shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. Um I find, looking back, I probably should have gone to a liberal arts school where they just teach history, you know, geography, social studies, English lit, American lit, all my favorite things, and not concentrate so much on, well, you have to have these many credits of science and math and all the things I'm bad at. Mm. So that didn't, uh, and I didn't know what the hell I wanted. The other, and in 1960, Eight, the end in fall of 68, 
your choices at that time, you go to college, or if you're healthy, you go to Vietnam. I didn't particularly, you know, want to go. I would have gone if I had to. Uh, and so I said, my dad said, well, you'd be better get your butt in college then. And I got accepted at Purdue North Central on probation because my grades, I goofed off a lot my junior and senior year. And I felt I was making up for lost time because I was away at the seminary. Mm. And uh, after working on the railroad and just the, there was always tension on the railroad. It's a fun job, but there was always ch tension between management and union. And that eventually is what, what drove me away was uh, I had an opportunity to go in and work as a train as a dispatcher. And, and at that point, you know, you dispatch trains and you issue train orders and the movement, you, you direct the movement of trains. And it's the next step after train service. And as soon as they, all oh, the old timers who were buddies of mine, I worked with them, I learned a lot from them. They cornered me in the trainman's room one time early when I was trained and they said, hey, we see what's happening. You know, we need, the railroad needs young people. They, they want young people and they're, they're, they're starting to groom you for management. And if you go that way, then, you know, you're no longer a friend because that's them and we're us. Mm -hmm. I said, this is, <laughs> this is 1974, not 1874. Mm -hmm. Right. They just, they just were ideologues. When it turned to that, I never saw that. And I said, eh, this is not good. So time to come back north. And I just thought, what the hell am I going to do? And I had another friend from high school who was cutting hair. And he went to the House of James Beauty College over in South Bend. <laughs> he says, hey, it's a good gig for 600 bucks. You know, you get the instruction, you come out, and, you know, you're a hairdresser. So I gave that a whirl. Over uh, here in South Bend? Over here in South Bend. Yeah, yeah and that's what moved me. I, I was, and at the same time, I was tenant bar in Michigan City. Okay. And that was my start in the restaurant business mm. at about, still was about 24 years old. And um, I got out, I worked for CHR Hair Studios over at Town & Country in Scottsdale Mall, mm -hmm. two places that are long gone. Uh, and it just wasn't my art. And I ran into a guy, another guy who went to the public high school in town named John Dwyer, and he was working at the Boar's Head. And I went in there, and it was, you know, it was, it was structured. The place I worked was Benny's Restaurant. It was an Italian restaurant and a bar, basically. And it was, you know, depending on when people came in, you were either making a martinis, which weren't all that at those times, in <laughs> Manhattan's, or a shot and a beer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did learn some things out of that, but when I got over here and I got a job at the board, said there was structure, uh, there was a manual, a uniform. Uh, they trained, they actually had a training program, different steps you go. And I was really impressed by that, hmm. which by the way, now the board's head, it became Damon's and then it became Jay Willie's barbecue. And now it's a TCU cash machine. Is <laughs> 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 what's there. It's right. kind of sad, but, and I had a chance to go into management and uh, started training, uh, closing the restaurant, being a, what we call key employee, and got into um, got into that. Really enjoyed it. Went away to a training school, which is an eight week program at another restaurant in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Came back here, 
right before the big snowstorm of 78 hmm. with the intent that I was going to go have an assistant manager job at a restaurant called the Dry Dock in Indy, part of the chain. Hmm. And so that week, after we got snowed in, the restaurant wasn't operated. I was trapped over in Mishawaka by Battelle Park where I rented an apartment. Um, my boss said, well, you got to get down here by this date. And I took the, loaded my van and took the 12-hour trip between here and India. <laughs> it was rough. Yeah. But I got there, uh, had a chance to learn a lot more, and I just set a goal. I want to, how do I say, I remember when they hired me, how long does it take to become a general manager? Uh, they said the earliest has been, been about 18 months mm-hmm. of seasoning and, you know, working as an assistant. I made it in 14 and uh, they made me training school manager. They had it, and uh, that accelerated my career to the point that in 1980, the company opened Tippecanoe Place, and that mm-hmm. was a unique venture for him. So Mark would spend six and a half years at Tippecanoe Place, the restaurant and venue inside the former Studebaker family mansion, which would become the training ground and launching pad for his career as a restaurateur. So six and a half years at Tippecanoe and doing a total improvement. And the other thing the guy said, run this place like you own it. He mm-hmm. says, I'm making you an entrepreneur. That was a new word that Tom Peters had coined and was in the book. And that's an entrepreneur who works within a company and mm-hmm. has the autonomy to run a, that part of the business like they own it. Right. So that was a great thing for me. Yeah. It was in these early days at Tippecanoe Place when Mark showed signs that he would be a business owner that cared about more than just the bottom line. And uh, when the time came that it, I had been a general manager for about 12 years, was kind of the senior guy of the rest of 48 restaurants in the Midwest, and I had stood up kind of in that position when the company said, we're going to open on Christmas Day. I thought I just got a family started. And I know a lot of my buddies, the mm-hmm. other managers, they were getting fan. I said, now, wait a minute. I said, are you guys working Christmas Day? Well, no. I said, then I'm not going to either. I said, that is just wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. I said, it's hard enough being open Christmas Eve. That's, there's just certain holidays that there shouldn't be. Business should just stop. And that that's a big one. Mm-hmm. So they ended up not doing it, but that really put the bullseye on. <laughs> <laughs> so the next review I got, they were, you know, they were uh, really giving me a lot of grief. Hey, you never, you know, none of the ma- managers that work for you ever, you know, they go out and they go work for independent restaurants or they, so a couple of them have started their own. I said, well, maybe work at a real restaurant is more attractive as an assistant is more attractive than running a rinky dink mountain jacks or a borzet. Well, that that did not <laughs> endear that did not endear him to me. So I said my yeah. days are numbered. And a month later, I gave him a I gave him a sixty day notice, and and I had talked to uh, the people at Century Center mm-hmm. and uh, had an opportunity to do another turnaround. After leaving Tippecanoe Place, Mark unknowingly began his journey toward LaSalle Grill by moving to a catering position at the Century Center, downtown South Bend's convention center between the St. Joseph River and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. During his time, he would often take walks downtown, searching for the right building to house his next venture. But at any rate, during that time, working at Century Center, 
there's it's feast or famine. Mm-hmm. Like there's 10 days in December, we did 20% of our sales, mm-hmm. you know, and those were the days that Bendix would have a thousand people come and a couple different RV companies would have a thousand people and you'd have 800 people down here. So, but then in January, if I have nothing, right. And it gave me a lot of time to think and kind of conceptualize. I always would walk downtown. I looked across the river uh, at where the Knights of Columbus is. It was a restaurant called the Mint Julep that had just closed. And we did some things in there and looked around and did some conceptualizing. Um, And then uh, down the street, oddly enough, we looked in what is now Subway, the Mm -hmm. back end of where Cafe Navarre is. And looked at a couple other things. And uh, one of my investors that I had lined up, he said, hey, I've got a place. He says, do you want to wake up every morning worrying about your landlord or wake up every morning worrying about your payroll and food costs and market? I said, well, yeah, I'd rather worry about the things I know I can control. Yeah. He walked me down here. And Sheffer, it was Sheffer advertising at the time, they had lost a couple of big accounts. White Farm Equipment was shutting down and they lost that. And it, and it was like, most of their eggs were in two baskets. Mm. And he says, they want to retrench, but all this whole bottom area is going to be available. And I got it uh, for a, a real good price. So Mark, with a team of investors, bought the building with plans to begin renovating the building to house a proper upscale restaurant. But it was early federal style. It One architect that was in here, he says, well, with these blasters, this was a precursor to... A, the structures, the basic structure of skyscrapers, mm. you know, where you run the supports up through the center right. and you can have a bigger building. Yeah. That's why buildings were so narrow and long. They were supported by their walls. Mm-hmm. Luckily for Mark, the stucco facade had been removed in a prior renovation during the 80s. And as a side note, this is one of the reasons why the building actually fails the criteria to be on the National Historic Register. Mm. It was ugly. Yeah. If you see the for sale, you know, before it was renovated in 1984, it just looks terrible. Yeah. And uh, they took it to the brick, which looks much better. Yeah. But the brick was just uh, the structural underlayment. Okay. And it had always been, you know, stucco for years and years and years. Hmm. I'm not sure why, but I'm glad they took it off. Yeah. And I didn't have to deal with it. Right. How, how much of that history, like, enticed you to to choose this to be one of the places? Well, it's it's odd because when I left Tippecanoe Place, uh, 25,000 square feet on four floors, I swore if I ever own my own restaurant, it's going to be on one level. Never going to be an old building on three floors. Right. And now I got an older building on three floors (laughs) and I own it. (laughs) But uh, I do like history. It was always my best subject in school. It's probably holds more interest than anything else uh, uh, in the field of study for me. Mm. And uh, it it just has, it's got something you can't duplicate. Mm. Uh, And in fact, my insurance agent, I've I've always insured it for much more than, you know, the operation or whatever, I pay extra to, if we had to rebuild it, you know, what would it be? It would take a lot to replace this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how you'd do it. Right. You know, uh, it, it would never be the same. Yeah. You know, but then I suppose it would have better lighting, better electrical. Well, everything's been redone. I mean, this floor is all LED lights. Eventually all the lights will be LED. Mm-hmm. 
It's been rewired a couple times. Uh, I mean, there's a massive amount of wire just since 1984 for the PBX system. And PBX systems are gone. Now there's voice over internet protocol. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just hooks up to your, to your uh, internet and all the wiring we've done. Uh, and I've had guys, hey, you want us to get, I said, no, don't. <laughs> I don't want you to go up there and start messing with stuff. Right. It, and it's interesting. If you push up the, this drop ceiling, you will see where those Ys come out, the old timber. Mm. you know, that goes up there. And I don't know what they used in the old days, but it's, man, that stuff's hard as a rock. Yeah. It's like reinforced concrete. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they, they are, the the building also down the basement goes out under the sidewalk. Mm. And when they redid our street this past summer, we're the only one where the vault, the old steam vaults were allowed to stay because I told them, okay, look, they had never seen the engineers came in. I said, they've never seen anything that was built out. We have two walk-ins. We have our, our, uh, our gas mix that pushes the draft beer lines mm -hmm. down there, big tank, a big system. And I told them, boy, you know, if you, it's your guy's street. I have, you know, if you, if you're taking that property back, you're going to have to compensate me. Mm -hmm. And I drew up what it would cost to redo all this and redeploy, mm -hmm. you know, walk-ins and, uh, and it was well over a hundred grand. And they said, well, we'll just let you keep it. <laughs> and they were nice enough to put the, the new sidewalk out there is the thickness was big, but they put rebar mm -hmm. about three times the size of normal rebar. Mm. And the con the concrete foreman said, "I could you could drive a eighteen wheel semi mm. on this and let it park it there and, and it'd be fine." Yeah, said, well, that's good to know. Yeah, <laughs> just make sure it doesn't leak anymore. Right. <laughs> well, you put a, the fear in them now. If somebody breaks the sidewalk and they you have a problem it, with your stuff, yeah. they know what it and, costs. And it's impressive. Both Tippecanoe and here, when we would have false alarms or fire alarms, fire department is right here. Yeah, they are fast. Mm -hmm. You know, I've witnessed it. So yeah. it must be, I don't know if we're on the list that, hey, you got to save that building. <laughs> yeah. Because South Bend, unfortunately, the only drawback to this whole city is that they tore too much down mm. in the 1960s. And if you, you go to other downtowns, Lafayette was a good example. It had failing stock, you know, building stock downtown. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of cases, they tore down the back of the building, reinforced the facade, and kept it up. Yeah. Uh, Brown Foreman in Louisville on their main east-west has made a fan. I was there two years ago, and um, it was a whole half-block facade of old building. Mm -hmm. And they they had the reinforcing piling mm -hmm. up, and then they built a fantastic headquarters behind it. Right. I said, that was really cool. Yeah. And I just heard on the news today, Fat Daddy's mm -hmm. is coming down. Yeah. Yeah, they just put a big fence around but it. But they, yeah, there. I guess there was plenty of time to for someone to come in and try to do something with it, and it just couldn't get done. But I hate to see the gist of it is I hate to see old buildings come down. For anyone owning a building and business in downtown South Bend over the last twenty-eight years has been anything but easy. I often wonder how people like Mark got the courage to invest in South Bend after watching a decade of near-constant demolition across downtown. As Mayor Pete would say, this was an act of hope. We asked Mark, who today is a loud advocate for downtown, about this decision. 
Boy, well, it's 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 all I really know how to do well. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't really have any other type of a management career other than working and managing restaurants and running restaurants and being a bartender and a server mm. uh, in the early days. So uh, I just want to see what's going to play out now in South Bend. We are a destination restaurant and a special occasion restaurant. The Sal Grill has always been a special occasion restaurant. And when I finally realized that, I said, we're just going to have to be the best. And I had made a conscious decision in 1987. I'm going to just stay here and try to do something mm-hmm. because I liked it. I always liked downtowns. I love downtown Michigan City. Worked at a couple places there. I like this downtown, though. Um, over the years, it's changed a lot. Yeah. It, it, it was it was vibrant to the thing that the more places had tenants, more ground floor, mm-hmm. all the way down Michigan Street, there was somebody in all the buildings. Yeah, uh, whether or not they were good businesses or businesses that were going to make it uh, was another story. When we bought the building from our landlord, nineteen ninety eight. A lot of things changed. Well, immediately they started rebuilding the uh, Morris Civic. Mm -hmm. And they were driving metal pilings in with a machine the size of Volkswagen Bug rattling our building within days of me purchasing it. (laughs) But I said, that's progress. It's going to be, it's going to make everything better. The theater's right there. Mm -hmm. And that kind of was the start of it. It seemed 98, we started, South Bend started on the journey of saying downtown matters uh, and we've got to make it better. In addition to the interview with Mark, we've also hunted down old photos, newspaper articles, and historical archives to give you listeners a view into the story of the building. Check out the show notes as well as the episode on westsb.com slash on purpose for all that additional content.